Okay, welcome everybody to tonight's Scottsdale Big Book study, where we will study the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today's date is the 15th of October. My name is Audrienne and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from County Mead in Ireland, and I will be your host for today's study. Our co-hosts are Nancy J, Johan and Sewell. If you have any questions during the meeting, please contact either myself or the co-host by private message in the chat function. Please note that the speaker, Harlan G, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer session, which follows, will not be recorded. We will post the link to previous week's recording in the chat function. We ask if you can please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also, please turn off your video if you are exercising, eating, or if you need to step away for your screen at any time. We will also post a link to the seventh tradition in the chat function during the meeting. And I will now gratefully hand you over to Harlan G. Thanks, Harlan. Oh, thank you so much, Audrey. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here with all of you. What a miracle of, of life this, uh, I'm in Chicago, I'm in Northbrook, Illinois. Actually, I'm not in Chicago, I'm in Northbrook, Illinois. And I'm at my 50th high school reunion. And just not to divert from the, from the text that we're going to be studying this morning. I've just experienced a lot of miracles. I want to share them all with you. But before I do, I want to remind you that the registration for the OA birthday has begun today, the 15th of October. So please register for the convention. Uh, and if you would like to volunteer to do any type of service, uh, uh, help with registration, help with setup, help with takedown, sell literature. They need people to do different things. If you're from the Los Angeles area or you are familiar with the Los Angeles area, they also need people to help with where do I find this or where do I find that or where's this? Or, they need a lot of service. So they need help and you can check off what you're willing to do and when you're going to get their registration for the OA birthday is easily obtainable at oabirthday.com, oabirthday.com. Very, very simple. You can update your app from last year also, and that'll have a complete schedule of everything. Just a wonderful, wonderful, and Amy and Susan and Ore and Lewis and so many of them that have worked so hard, their, the fruits of their labor are starting to come to uh, fruition now with the registration opening. And then, of course, in January, when we actually meet in Los Angeles, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th of January. What an exciting time that will be. I will be in White Plains, New York on the 9th, 10th, and 11th of um, December. That will be in December in Westchester County, New York. And I can't do anything like post the registration because I can't, I don't know how to do it from a phone. I know how to do it on a computer, but if you, uh, uh, Diane will maybe do it uh, in the chat and that'll be fantastic. And I just, uh, I'm so gl grateful, grateful to God that of the people that are here in at the reunion, that I am one of them and I'm alive and I'm here just yesterday uh, and the day before tons of feelings coming up being back in Chicago, seeing my house, seeing my neighborhood, the changes. And yet at the same time, I remember everything as it was and I see it as it is. 
And it's just a beautiful, beautiful experience. I had a couple of experiences yesterday that I would like to share with you before we get started being here at the reunion. The first one is more personal. And the second one is a little more broad in general. I was uh, able to attend a tour of Mather High School. I'm wearing a Mather t-shirt right now. Um, and I was able to attend the tour of Mather High School. And I was so overwhelmed with feelings of nostalgia. Like I had a class in that room or that was where my locker was or that was, you know, this or that. Just lots of memories coming back. And I was able to do the standing and I was able to do the walking. And even though I walked three miles a day, six days a week, the fact that I was able to do this, just like everyone else, was astounding to me. And in keeping with this theory of being like everyone else, toward the end of the tour, they brought us to the lunchroom, where I excelled, as you know. But there's the bookstore there. There's the Mather Bookstore. And they sell Chazerai, like the T-shirts and the gym shorts. And, and you had to have cash, which I didn't know. I didn't know you had it. I just figured I could use my credit card. No, you got to have cash. So I bought a bunch of T-shirts. I bought a bunch of shorts, as did just about everyone. And one of the things that was so miraculous for me, I almost cried. I didn't have to be on the outside looking in. I was able to buy t-shirts and shorts that fit the same way, the same place as everyone else for the first time in that building in my entire life. Never did I imagine that I would be alive this long, 50 years. When, when it was 1972 and we were graduating high school, 1971 was the start of our senior year. I was 300 pounds. By the time I graduated, I was 335. Doctors were signing my death warrant. Everybody was signing my death warrant. And yet I'm still alive. But to buy garments, not food, not pencils, not pens, garments in the same bookstore as everyone else, and they fit and they're wonderful, and they have the name of my school on them, just like everyone else, almost leveled me to tears because I know the journey that God brought me through. I know the journey of never being able to look like them, never being able to do the things that they can do that they don't even have to think about. I was able to do them and how grateful am I? And the other thing that's very, very beautiful about the reunion, and this is true of more than just this reunion, but many of the reunions that we've had in the 50 years, and we've had six of them because we had five 10-year gaps in the reunions, and then we've also had a 45th reunion, which was five years ago, and I was lucky enough to be here for all of them. I haven't missed any of them yet. But what was very beautiful is the lions, the lambs, the chickens, the sheep, the giraffes were all together. What do I mean by that? Life is the great equalizer. Life is the great teacher. And it's the great common denominator is the passage of time. 
And no longer were there the cool kids and the not cool kids and the, and the jerks and the jocks and the this and the cheerleaders and the cool girls. No longer was that in place. And we ate, we ate at a place called Wolfie's on Peterson Avenue. They made me a salad, but it's a hot, it's essentially a hot dog place. But they made me a salad and everything. And that was fine. I called ahead, I made sure everything was taken care of. And the people that were sitting and dining together, and there were a lot of us, would not have given each other the time of day 50 years ago. But it didn't matter anymore. It didn't matter anymore. No longer were there the groups and the this and the stigmas and the labels of who you're with and who you're not with. People that would not have had a conversation 50 years ago were deep in conversation that would never have sat at the same table at the library or the lunchroom were sitting together and breaking bread because the passage of time has become that great equalizer. How beautiful was that? How beautiful is that? And I don't know that many of them or any of them even would notice something like that. But to me, it was loud and clear and obvious. And so I was very glad. Um, I don't want to go through trials and tribulations, but you have to in life. It's just one of those things. And it brings us to a point where we can forget all the labels, unshackle from all these various things, and just be people. So beautiful, so beautiful. Um, the best is yet to come tonight is the actual reunion. And there's 146 of us coming out of 460. And there are 48 that have passed away. So we are the survivors. And um, I've run into a bunch of them in the hallway. Some of them from out of town are staying here at the hotel. And it's just a joyous, joyous uh, reunion of people is exactly what it is. Okay, we're going to go to page 56 at the top. But before we talk about our friend Fitz Mayo, before we talk about Fitz Mayo, we're going to sort of get a running start into the story, into the last couple of paragraphs here. I don't know that we'll finish, but I'm hoping to. So we can begin uh, how it works next week when I'm back in Arizona. Um, we agnostics. What is an agnostic? If it seems like I'm sitting funny, the only place to sit in this hotel room is a place that is for your luggage to sit. And it's very high. It comes all the way to my chest here. Normally when I sit at my desk, it's much lower. So this is a little weird for me. And I'm sure it may look a little weird to you too, but just bear with me next week. I'll be back in Scottsdale. I won't have winter coats on, nor will I have sweatshirts on. I won't need them. It'll be just gorgeous. But anyway, I'm glad to be here. The bottom line is what is an agnostic? Why are we talking about agnosticism? Why are we talking about agnostics? A believer is a believer that there is a religious deity in the sky or in our hearts. And oftentimes with the long beard and the staff and the robes sitting on a cloud, 
waiting to judge us or waiting to hear our case that we should be admitted into heaven or so on, whatever that may be for you. If I say the word God, I don't know how many people are here because I can't see that. But however many of you are on here, there will be one different image of God in every one of your hearts and heads. And then there's the atheist. Jimmy Burwell was an atheist. Jimmy Burwell was AA's early atheist. And he was a power driver. And he power drove this idea of God as you understand God into the steps and into the book. And Jimmy Burwell was very friendly with Fitz Mayo, who we're going to be talking about today. But an, an atheist is a person who believes that there is no religious deity up in the sky or anywhere else, that the world is just formed. And it's like the Big Bang Theory, where science just came together and bang, there was Earth and you know all the other things. But there is no force of religion or force of a religious deity at work. And then there's the agnostic. Ag means without, gnostic means knowledge, without knowledge. Many of us fall into that category. Now, my category was, I believe that there was a religious deity. I believe that there was a God, but I did not know how to make that God personal to me, nor did I believe that such a thing was possible to make God personal to me. And so it took me a lot of work. And when I say work, what I mean is not just prayer, not just meditation, but actually visualizing by writing it down and trying to visualize it in my head and heart of a God that was what I wanted that God to be. I didn't want a judgmental God. Doctors have been screaming at me for being fat. Clothing store operators were saying they couldn't fit me. The world had rejected me. The world had sent me a signal. And the signal that the world sent me was, you as you are, are unacceptable. And until you get it, until you understand that you shouldn't eat ice cream and you shouldn't eat Big Macs or you shouldn't eat Kentucky Fried Chicken, you shouldn't be so fat, we will continue to lambast you with abuse. We will continue to hurt you. We will continue to limit you. We will continue to show you a very, very evil side of us until you get it, until you wise up and get the willpower and get the, the uh, fortitude of character, the strength, the willpower, to stay on a diet. And the world sent me a signal that said, you young men are not gonna live very long and you are unacceptable. And so I became suicidal. I, be, I didn't do it, but I, I, I wanted to die. Not really suicidal, I wanted to die. I, I wanted to die of natural causes. I didn't wanna take a gun or anything. I don't have guns, I'm not a violent person. But you get the idea. I did not want to live. It killed my spirit. It killed my will to live. And so this idea of having a relationship with a God that I thought was responsible for making me fat was not something that I relished. It was not something that I wanted. It was not something that I thought I could achieve. But when I did, it was beautiful. But I, it took work. An agnostic is someone 
who has no knowledge. Ag means without, Gnostic means knowledge. Knowledge of what? Knowledge that God could and would if he were sought. I have to be willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself. That is all that's required. I do not have to have a degree in theology. I do not have to go to the synagogue every day and pray. I do not have to go to church every day and pray, nor the mosque, nor the temple, nor the ashram, nor anything. I do not have to have a, even a loose religious affiliation. All I need to do is be willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself. That's all that's required to make a beginning. So the agnostic is someone who doesn't have enough knowledge. And we also covered in this chapter something that's very, very important. And the importance of this is cannot be overestimated or overstated. The thesis line of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is on page 45. What is the thesis line? What does that mean? It means the line that kind of sums up the whole purpose, the whole story of this entire book. And it's on page 45. It says, well, that's exactly what this book is all about. The next line is the thesis line. Its main object, it's referring to the book. Its main object is to enable you to find a power, capitalized God, greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. And so it does not say the main object of this book is to help you find abstinence. It does not say that the main object of this book is to help you find sobriety. Now, abstinence or sobriety, as we would translate sobriety, it becomes abstinence. Abstinence is defined in a way as being abstaining from compulsive overeating and compulsive food behaviors while maintain, working toward or maintaining a healthy body weight. That does not ever change. Food plans change, but the definition of abstinence does not change. Now, why doesn't it say, why doesn't it say that the main object of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself, which will get you sober because sobriety, abstinence, is very low ceiling. It's a very low ceiling. And abstinence does not treat the disease. If you're on vision for you, you know that this week coming, we're still in chapter three, more about alcoholism. And we're going to read the story of Jim, but we've already read the story of a man of 30. For 25 years, he didn't drink. Yet it didn't cure him. It didn't fix him. It didn't, it didn't transform him. He pulled out a carpet slipper and a bottle and within four years he was dead. So one of the myths that we want to smash is that abstinence alone will not treat this disease. What does treat this disease is a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. And that is the only thing that will treat this disease. The only thing that will treat this disease is a spiritual awakening. What's the last sentence on page 43? The last two sentences, excuse me, on page 43. 
Once more, no, I'm going to do the last little paragraph here, page 43. Once more, and he's already told us this a bunch of times, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. Money won't do it. Sex won't do it. Fame won't do it. Poverty won't do it. Being a religion or a race won't do it. His defense must come from a higher power. Let's go back to page 56. So we see that the second step says the word sanity. And sanity comes from buying a garment at the bookstore like all the other kids. They're not kids anymore. We're 68. But in my mind, we're kids. When I see them, I don't see them at 68. I see them at 7, 12, 15. That's how I see them. Maybe they see me that way. Maybe they don't. I don't know. I couldn't tell you. But I see a Mather t-shirt on my back that fits. It's not skin tight. It's not something I'm squeezing into. It fits and it's wonderful. What's so wonderful about it? It's just like all the other kids. I didn't have to go to a special store. Only God can make that happen. I couldn't make that happen. I'm sick. I'm sick in my mind. I'm sick in my body. I'm sick. I could never have made that happen. No way. Fitz Mayo, very good friend of Bill Wilson's after he got sober. Fitz Mayo was from the greater Washington, D.C. area. And Fitz, after Hank Parkhurst, Silas Bent, some of these other guys, he was an original guy in New York. And he was a very religious man. Even though he doubted that God could help him, he had that pocket of agnosticism. He didn't know that God could help him, could and would help him with his alcoholism. And so he was moved to cry in the hospital that God could and would. Who am I to say there is no God, he will say. Fitzmayo will become very, very good friends with Bill Wilson. He will maintain his sobriety from 1946 or 1945, rather, through 1943, when he will die of cancer. He will pass away, unfortunately, in October, October 4th, not too far past of, in 1943. He will succumb to cancer after eight years of sobriety. Fitz's sister Agnes will loom large because she will loan Bill Wilson an AA $1,000 to help get the book printed. And she will loan Bill this money and they will use it to get the book printed. And that was in April of 39, April 10th, 1939, the book got printed. Fitz's wife was Elizabeth and Elizabeth was very, very good friends with Lois Wilson because of the men being so friendly, they became friendly. And 
Fitz was the one who started AA in Washington, D.C. So all the meetings that are in our nation's capital come from the meetings that John Henry Fitzhugh Mayo started, commonly known as Fitz Mayo. Okay, page 56 at the top. Our friend was a minister's son. He attended church school where he became rebellious at what he thought was an overdose of religious education. He thought he was getting too much of it. He rebelled against it. For years thereafter, he was dogged by trouble and frustration. Business failure, insanity, fatal illness, suicide. These calamities in his immediate family embittered and depressed him post-war disillusionment, ever more serious alcoholism, impending mental and physical collapse brought him to the point of self-destruction. And so he saw what was going on around him. He also had a very severely diabetic daughter. He had two sons that were relatively healthy and fine, and his daughter was a severe diabetic. And that was a major, major concern, especially in 1943, or excuse me, 1935, or at any time it's a concern, but especially then. So he sees all these things going on around him, and he is to the point of self-destruction, but he's also to the point of doubt that God could be and would be personal to him if he were sought. He did not really understand that these things happen and that we can either die because of them or live in spite of them. We can die because of them or live in spite of them. Very important because poo-poo is going to happen to everybody. There is no person on this line no person in this world, no person in this universe, either living or dead or unborn as of yet, who is not going to experience disappointment. It happens. It is a natural part of life. But what is as natural a part of life as disaster is the fact that God is powerful. God is here. And if we call his name, he will cry with us and elevate us above the level of our trouble. He will never elevate you above the level of human being, but he will elevate you above your trouble. If somebody would have said to me in that cafeteria of Mather High School in 1972, one day, Harlan, you will weigh 100 and five pounds less than you weigh today. 105 pounds less than you weigh today. And you will fit into a garment that can be purchased at the Mather bookstore and you will still be alive in 2022. I would have doubted that. I would have laughed in their face derisively. I would have thought them idiots. I would have thought they were morons. How can you make such a statement? And yet it has come to pass. I am alive. I am wearing a Mather t-shirt. 
it's not tight on me at all. I'm not wearing my natural shorts. I'm wearing jeans because I'm going to go down and meet a friend for lunch after this. But if somebody would have said to me that those things would have been true, I would have been snotty toward them. Yet God made those things possible. Now, it was up to me to do the work. Yes. God doesn't come down here and do for me what I can do for myself. No, he's not going to do that. He's not going to do for me what I can do for myself. He's not a genie in a bottle. He's not a magician. He's not a sideshow act. He's God. So what I need to do is I need to do God's work, yet not God's job. What's the difference? My work is to be here with you. My work is to do the steps. My work is to help my sponsees. My work is to get to meetings. My work is to pray, to meditate. My work is to help other people. God's work is everything beyond that. Somebody would have said to me, you'll stand right on this spot in 50 years and you'll be alive. I never would have believed that God did for me what I could never have done for myself. What a miracle. One night, when confined in a hospital, he was approached by an alcoholic who had known a spiritual experience. That man's name was Silas Bent. And Silas was one of the first New Yorkers to get sober in the original group. Our friends Gorge rose as he bitterly cried out, if there is a God, he certainly hasn't done anything for me. And how many of us brats, how many of us ingrates, I'm kidding, of course, but I'm not. How many of us, have said to God, yeah, you want me to worship you, but you didn't give whatever. You didn't give me a pony or you didn't give me a bicycle or you did, or you took my relative or you didn't give me the girl I wanted or the boy I wanted or you did something that I didn't like. So screw you. How many of us have said that? And yet we forget how much there is to be grateful for. Like if you're hearing my voice, whether it's on podcast or it's in right as I'm doing it now on the 15th of October, you're alive and you can hear and you can think and you can understand and you have a program and you have a big book and you have meetings. That's a lot more than most addicted people had prior to the 1930s. Let me tell you. You have a lot. Yeah, you may be crying. Someone may be dying. Someone may be in a, in a bad situation. Someone you love very much. I don't know. Maybe you're eating. Maybe you're eating as I'm talking. I don't know. But you know one thing. This works or you wouldn't be listening to my voice right now. But later alone in his room, he asked himself this question. Is it possible that all the religious people I have known are wrong? Is it possible that people that you have known 
or the religious people you've known are wrong? Is it possible that all the religious people I know are wrong? While pondering the answer, he felt as though he lived in, a, in hell. Then like a thunderbolt, a great thought came. It crowded out all else. Who are you to say there is no God? Now, many years ago, way back in 1980, I went to the Lincoln Park Alano Club. It was a freezing cold day, freezing cold night. And there was a speaker there named Leaf, Joe Leaf. He's dead now. He was called Wino Joe. And one of the reasons you don't hear a lot of Wino Joe today is he had a filthy mouth. Every other word was a swear word. And many of the recordings that he made were deliberately not preserved. He was from Texas, South Texas. And he laughed uh, in, a, in a kind of weird way, but he laughed and he, he says, well, we got all these questions to see if you're an alcoholic. You know, do you drink alone or you, this or that? He says, that's crap. He says, there's only a couple of questions you need to answer if you want to determine if you're an alcoholic. He says, has the roof of your mouth ever been sunburned while you were drunk? But he'd lay out in those cotton fields down there in Texas and the roof of his mouth would get sunburned. And he'd say, if you haven't had the roof of your mouth sunburned, you might not be an alcoholic. But if you have, you definitely are. And then he'd say, have you ever been arrested for drunk and disorderly while in jail. And then the third question that he had was the last question that he had, have you ever been arrested for drunk driving from the back seat of someone else's car? He says, if you have answered these questions, yes, you're probably an alcoholic. We don't need these other questions. But anyway, Joe Leith, there must have been 250 people at the Lincoln Park Alano Club that night. We were packed in there like sorry. Sardines. And he, he held the room. He was a riveting speaker, riveting. And the whole room went quiet. And he says, what if you prayed to God and you believed in God? Do you have anything to lose? You could hear a pin drop in there. He said, what do you got to lose? You got nothing to lose but your drunkenness. He says, because it's 50-50. Either there is one or there's not. He'd say, you're better off erring, er making a mistake on the side of there is because that's the best way to go. If you decide there isn't one and you find out there is one, you're screwed. And he'd say, if you find out there is one and you've been believing in him all along, he did good. He said, you got nothing to lose. And the whole place was quiet as a church mouse. Who are you to say there is no God? Doesn't have to be the God of your religion, or it could be. 
It doesn't have to be the God of someone else, or it could be. It doesn't have to be what someone tells you is God. You can decide that for yourself. The only thing you need to be willing to do is to believe, willing to believe, not believe, that there is a power greater than yourself. That's enough to make your beginning. Page 56, three quarters of the way down the page. This man recounts it that he tumbled out of bed to his knees. In a few seconds, he was overwhelmed by a conviction of the presence of God capitalized because he's talking about his God, his higher power. He was overwhelmed by a conviction. What's a conviction? It means I have believed. Remember in Bill's story, we read the words, I saw, I felt, I believed. What did Bill see? He saw recovery in Ebby. What's the difference between recovery and a dry drunk? A recovered alcoholic is someone who's not drinking, and a dry drunk is someone who's not drinking. They're both alcoholics, but the dry drunk is miserable not drinking. And the alcoholic who's in recovery is happy in his release. He's thrilled not to be drinking. That's the difference. It poured over and through him with the certainty. Oh, I forgot to finish my thought. I saw, I felt. What did he feel? Hope. That if Ebby could be happy in his release, that maybe he could too. And he was. I believe. I saw, I felt, I believed. He saw recovery. He felt hope. He believed that God could and would if he were sought. How do you seek God? You seek him in your steps and you seek him by helping other newcomers, by helping other people. That's how you seek God. You must pass on what you have been taught. You must pass it on. He had stepped from bridge to shore. For the first time he lived in conscious companionship with his creator. This conscious companionship. Sometimes I have fear, I have doubt, I have anger, I have prejudice, I have negative thoughts, but I'm overwhelmed by the idea that God is here and all is well. God is here and all is well. When I do step 10, it puts me back in my chair, puts me back in my place, and I understand that everything is going to be okay. Now, I didn't say everything is going to go my way, did I? I didn't say that. But no matter what happens, it's going to be okay. Because God sees the big picture. I'm very nearsighted. I'm very, very nearsighted. I can only see a little bit down the road. Not much, just a little down the road. Maybe about five seconds. Three seconds, maybe? Maybe? God sees the gestalt, the big picture. He sees what I cannot see. Because if he was small enough for me to understand, he would not be big enough to solve my problem. 
he sees everything and cries with me often when things don't go right. I'm in conscious companionship. I'm in companionship. We're friends. How do I establish a friend? How do I establish a relationship with anybody? Communicating, sharing, spending time. That's how you develop a, a relationship with another person. That's how it happens. And it's never been any different in your life. You've never had a relationship in your life that you didn't have to work at. Maybe your mom and dad, or if you have siblings or something, you were just kind of born into it. And there's mom and there's dad and there's, you know, your brother and there's your sister or whatever that may be. You didn't really have to work at that very much. But when you were a kid and you went to nursery school or you went to school and you made a friend, you had to talk to that friend. You had to share with that friend. You had to think about that friend. You had to consider that friend. That's the only way I've ever made friends. I, if there's another way, let me in on it. I'd like to know. But we spend time and we learn about each other. What about dating? There's your perfect. It's, it's a job interview, isn't it? Isn't dating like a job interview? You're kind of going in there and you're, you know, kind of hoping to get the job and, you know, you're trying to be funny and considerate and all this stuff. Of course, after the wedding, for many of us, we can, you know, we can just watch TV. But the bottom line is, is that seriously, we are working at a relationship. We are working at something. And how do we work at it? We date, we go here, we go there, we spend time together. We do whatever it is that, that people do when they're dating. And for different people, different couples, that may be different things. That may be different things. But without spending time together, without sharing together, without looking at each other's lives and seeing where, they, where you fit into this picture, you're not going to... God is the same thing. It's the same thing. I spend time with God. How do I spend time with God specifically? Prayer, meditation, and what else? Service. I'm spending time with God right now as I do this big book. I'm spending time when I spend time on the phone with my sponsees, both new ones and the ones I've had for a while. I spend time with God when I go to a meeting. I spend time with God when I greet newcomers. I spend time with God when I answer questions of newcomers or not so newcomers. That's how I spend time with God. I'm not going to sit here in my hotel room and just pray, 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 pray. I got to go out there and live my life. I got to go out there and be of service. This is not an 11-step program. It's a 12-step program. That means I'm going to have to pass on what I've learned. My friend Kim in New Jersey says, you're afraid to sponsor? You better be afraid not to. Some of you call me or text me or email me. You don't want to sponsor. That's too bad. I don't want to take your questions. But we do what we do because that's how we heal. That's how we recover from this illness. That's how we recover from this illness. You want to find God? You're not sure where God is? 
You better look for him in the face of one of his children. That's where I find God most often is in the faces of one of his children. Bottom of 56. Thus was our friend's cornerstone fixed in place. The cornerstone of a building is the cornerstone. It is that stone which holds up a lot of other stuff. It's the main thing. It's like that keystone. Thus was our friend's cornerstone fixed in place. No later vicissitude has shaken it. What is a vicissitude? It's an unwelcome change. Maybe somebody's going to die. Maybe a relationship is going to go south. Maybe a friend of yours has said something that hurt your feelings. Maybe it's a situation where things are just not going your way. No later vicissitude and unwelcome change has shaken it. His alcoholic problem was taken away. That very night years ago, it disappeared, save for a few brief moments of temptation. The thought of drink has never returned. And at such times, a great revulsion has risen up in him. Because by that time, sanity has returned to the life of Fitz. And when sanity returns, you don't want to destroy yourself with food or liquor or drugs or anything. You like yourself enough not to want to destroy yourself. Does that mean you're cured of compulsive overeating? No. No. There will be times where your mental twist will say, I want to eat that Reese's peanut butter cup. I want to eat that candy. I want to eat that cake because the mental twist will focus in on what that sugar, flour, but whatever it is will do for me. I'm not cured of alcoholism. What I have is a daily reprieve based on the contingency of my spiritual condition, not the contingency, the quality, not the contingency, the quality of my spiritual condition. Everything is contingent upon being in fit spiritual condition. There is no recovery, no recovery without being in fit spiritual condition. Seemingly he could not drink even if he would. God had restored his sanity. Now, there's no cure for this, but as long as I remain in fit spiritual condition, the temptation to eat foods that will destroy me is simply not there. It's just not there. What is this but a miracle of healing? Yet its elements are simple. Circumstances made him willing to believe. He humbly offered himself to his maker. Then he knew. What did that mean? He humbly offered himself to his maker. That's step three. And when we take step three, what is step three? Step three, we don't turn anything over to anyone in step three. What we're doing in step three is we're making a decision to do four through 12 every day for the rest of our lives. And when I do 10, 11, and 12, I'm doing four through 12 every day of my life. And as long as I do 4 through 12 
every day of my life, the food will not enter my mouth. It will not. I won't want it. I won't want to do that. And he humbly offered himself to his maker. Does that sound familiar? God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt, to relieve me of the bondage of self so that I may better do thy will, take away my difficulties so that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Does that sound familiar? Gosh, I hope it does. That's the third step prayer. So Fitz Mayo, by saying that, was saying that he understands that he alone on his willpower, on his discipline, on his character, knows, really knows that he cannot overcome his alcoholism. Remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for us. You find that help. May you find God. May you find him now. We alone cannot beat this game. Impossible. Impossible to beat this game by yourself, on your own, of your own willpower. You're not going to win. If you're in here and you're dieting with group support, you're just kind of listening to this. You're not taking a lot of it in. And you're just, it's about a food plan for you. That's okay as a start. But eventually the wheels come off the cart with that. This is my experience in my life. I can only keep that up for so long. Without God, without help, this is way too much for me. This disease took me out of life. This disease took me to places I wouldn't take my worst enemy. It made me an object of ridicule. It emasculated me. It deformed me. It threw me under the bus of life. People were cruel to me, no question. But I was cruel to myself and others. If you do not heal your wounds, you will bleed on people that did not cut you. Let me say that again. If you do not heal your wounds, you will bleed on people that did not cut you. And that means that in my tempestuous rage over how I was thrown into the world as a compulsive overeater, I was cruel and I was mean and I was heartless, both to myself, mostly to myself, and at times to others. Most notably, my mother. I blamed her for everything. My dad, too, but mostly my mother. As I was sitting in front of my building at 6309 North Albany in Chicago, I was with someone and I almost burst into tears. I was telling them a story about my mom. And 
a lot of the thoughts that I was having at that time were not of pleasant things, but of the mean things that I said to her, the heartless things that I said to her. And she was my mom. And if she could have cured my compulsive overeating, she would have. If she could have given me whatever she had so that I would fend off the desire to eat food to the point of destruction, she would have done that. She couldn't do it. She was only human. And yet I took it out on her. Some of us have taken it out on parents. Some of us have taken it out on friends. Some of us have taken it out on lovers, spouses, children, innocents. If you do not heal your wounds, you will bleed on people that did not cut you. And so we are called upon with God's help to recover as best we can. Because in recovery, you now become an asset in the lives of those closest to you rather than a liability. Someone that they have to be walking on eggshells around. Someone that they know is hurting and they cannot stop the hurt. We can let them focus their attention on other matters because we are in the hands of God and we will be helped by God. And it says here, even so has God restored us all to our right minds. To this man, Fitzmail, the revelation was sudden. To Bill Wilson, the revelation was sudden. And Fitzmail wanted a very religious book. Jimmy Burwell, his very good friend, they're buried about 20 feet apart in Owings Mills, Maryland, in a cemetery wanted a book where no religion was discussed, where God was never mentioned. He wanted, and Hank Parkhurst wanted, and others wanted a psychological book. And Fitz Mayo was important. He was as important as Jimmy Burwell was because he pushed for a God-based book, a Christian book, a religious book. So Bill met in the middle and we have the magnificent big book that we have today. So if Jimmy Burwell was the influence to East, Fitzmayo was the influence to the West. He wanted a book of psychology. He, want, he didn't want any religion, no mention of God, forget God, no God for me, thank you very much, no. Yes, I want God on this side, Fitzmayo. Yes, I want a religious book. Yes, I want us to study, and I not study, I want us to work a religious program. And so Bill kind of was in the middle. Is it odd or is it God that we have the timeless book that we have in front of us today, our precious, effective, miraculous, big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We have it today. And one of the great influences on that book was this man, Fitz Mayo. 
Some of us grow into it more slowly. My revelation to God is a slow process. I have never had a spiritual experience. I actually had one, but I'm reticent to share it. And it involves uh, 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 some of the girls that are downstairs right now. But no, I'm kidding. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. No, I never had a spiritual experience. But the bottom line is I've had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. And I continue to have that awakening, more of the educational variety than probably anything else. Some of us grow into it more slowly, but he has come to all who have honestly sought him. How do you seek God? Again, you seek him in your labors. You seek him in thought. You seek him in spirit. You seek him in the works of your life. Stop sitting, waiting for God to reveal himself to you. Go find him in the face of one of his children. Go find him when they read off the roster of newcomers on a vision for you in the morning at the beginning of the second meeting. Call some of them. If they don't call you back, that's okay. You made the effort. You will feel good. And how does that restore your sanity? One of the things that this disease makes me do is hate myself. One of the things that I have to do to make myself like myself is to do self-esteemable actions, self-esteemable activities like working out, like coming here when I was scared to and be part of the reunion. Living life, going out there and being of service. This is what makes me like myself rather than hate myself. I hated myself because I lied to myself. I put myself in the position of being an object of ridicule. I put myself in a position of sideshow, of object of ridicule, of not liking what I see in the mirror in my reflection. Now I like it. Now I'm not narcissistic. I'm not narcissistic. I'm not narcissist. I'm not going to sit and look at my reflection all day. No, I'm not crazy. But I'm a good person. And I have a way of understanding through this program that no matter how evolved my recovery gets, I will never rise above the level of human being. I'm going to make mistakes. So are you. That's okay. I don't have to beat myself up over it. My ex-wife said to me one time when we were first married, I got lost. She says, if you spoke to your friends the way you speak to yourself, would you have any? No. Let's finish this and we'll go into questions and answers. When we drew near to him, capitalized, he disclosed himself to us. Walk to God. He'll run to you. Walk to God. All the recovery that I have enjoyed since I have been in Chicago can be yours for the asking. I'm wearing a shirt that says Mather. It does Mather. And I'm wearing it and it's not tight. And I bought it at the bookstore. 
and I stood on the ground of the cafeteria where I used to eat myself into oblivion, and I was, was just like the other kids. They may be 68, but they're kids to me. I stood, I walked, I participated. I'm part of the group. I'm not the fattest one here. I don't want to be a spectacle. I don't want to be a sideshow. I don't want to be an object of ridicule. My father marched out of hell so I could be born. And he said many thousands of times, the only reason I got away was so you could be born in America. I'm right off that highway. I've told you this story, how I would take him to Wisconsin. I could see that highway from my room, Highway 94, 41. And he would cry because you can go from Illinois to Wisconsin and back all day long. You don't need a checkpoint. There's no, you don't need credentials. There's no guards. There's no military, nothing. You just go and do it because you want to. That was astounding to him, astounding to him. And I'm here and I'm alive. I'm alive. I'm alive. You can do it too. There's nothing I did that's, that's a secret. It's all here. Everything I've ever done is here. It's not something that somebody told me on the QT. They says, no, no, they didn't do that. Here it is. You can do it too. If you're struggling, come on. Let's get off this. Let's get off this struggle bus and let's go. Come on. Let's, let's recover. All right. I need one second. I'm going to turn this before I do. Wait, before I turn anything over to anybody, no math questions, no math, no food questions. Let's not waste time with food questions, please. But I'm going to turn it over to whoever's doing it. I'm coming right back. I got to go to the little boy's room and it'll take one second. I'll be right back.